This morning, we've been working in this series, Move, and we're looking at the life of David. We're going to do something very practical this morning, okay? Um, We're going to start with a question that a lot of us have probably asked or at least thought of at some point in our Christian walk. Most people probably in this room and also with us online have probably heard at some point that David is a man after God's own heart. Well, what in the world does that mean? And how do we compare ourselves to David? If we, if we know David's a man after God's own heart, how do we do that? So the second question we're going to carry with us this morning is this one. How do we move to become women and men after God's own heart? It's the whole reason that we're doing this series, right? Movement. movement. And most of what I'm going to say is going to be on the screen uh, so that you can follow along and hopefully uh, there's a lot to cover here, but it will make connections. So the first thing we have to do is we have to say, okay, if, if David's a man after God's own heart, then what is the source of David's strength, courage, and confidence? Well, we're going to do a little bit of review here real quickly on things that Leslie's taken us through and John Micah's taken us through and Brian Shepard uh, and Dr. Rodney Cloud the first week of the series. Look back at Samuel 17. This is David telling King Saul why he can go out and fight Goliath. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And King Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David not only went, but we know he defeated Goliath, right? And when he defeated Goliath, he becomes a member of Saul's army. He becomes a soldier in King Saul's army. And God is with him in everything that David does. Now, pause. That's a whole other sermon. That's a whole other explanation about what that that phrase actually means. But what we're going to go with today is God's enemies are David's enemies. Okay? David is not some vigilante person out there just randomly killing people and causing all kinds of violence. He is only doing what God has him doing. His enemies are only the enemies of him because they're enemies of God. Here's what's fascinating, though. This is David's mindset for how he engages. Uh, sorry, one slide too soon. This is, this is when Leslie took us through the women coming back from these battles that David and Saul have been in. The women sing to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. But see, what we have to remember right here is they're on the same team. The people they've struck down, they're striking down for God at God's will and God's command, and they're actually fighting on the same side until Saul gets very angry because this saying displeases him. He's saying they've ascribed tens of thousands to David, and they've only ascribed thousands to me, what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul gets very jealous. David's popularity overshadows that of Saul because of things like killing Goliath and other things and the the, uh, women singing about him. And Saul becomes so jealous that he tries to kill David. Then David flees the city as Les took us through where, you know, his wife helps him escape, and now he's a fugitive because he has... Uh, vacated the premises. And so we're getting very close to where we're going to start today. David, who's become a legend because of Goliath, and he's a known warrior and leader because of being involved in Saul's army, he now has an army of his own that's often referred to as David's mighty men. These guys are a bunch of 
outlaws and outcasts and you know people and and some of David's brothers who have come back together and said we're going to be we're going to serve you we're going to be allegiant to you but our big question David a leader of a band of outlaws with blood on his hands from tens of thousands and later in life we know he commits adultery and premeditated murder so how in the world does God say about David in 1 Samuel 13:14 that he has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. And then Paul comes along and, and confirms that in Acts 13, 20 through 22. That's what we're going to go through as we look at probably the best text that gives us an assessment of David than maybe any other passage. And we're going to see ourselves in the text. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 24 from the NIV. If you want to follow along, it will also be on the screen. And we're just going to work straight through it pausing after a few verses uh, to cover a few things. So starting in verse 1, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. All right, so in the midst of the search for David, nature calls, and King Saul needs to go to the bathroom. But kings don't go to the bathroom in public. Kings find places to have privacy. So apparently, David got word that Saul and his men were headed their way, and David told his men to scatter into the surrounding areas and hills and hide until Saul and his men had passed through, and then they would come out and they would go the other direction. But the very cave that Saul selects to use the bathroom contains David and a group of his mighty men. We don't, not all of them, obviously, but some, some portion of them. And the text says there in verse 3, far back in the cave. So think about this. You come in from bright daylight like we have today, and you come into a movie theater or some very dark room, and you can't see anything, right? But if you've been in there a while, your eyes have dilated, and you can see around the room, and you can start to make out the rows and the chairs and maybe even read the little numbers on the seats in the movie theater if that's what you're thinking of right now. So David and his men have adjusted to the darkness, They're in the back of the cave, and they can see everything that's going on. But Saul, on the other hand, has just come in from the bright sunlight, and he can't make out any detail in the cave at all. So Saul moves just inside the cave enough to ensure his privacy, because, after all, he's the king. He takes off his robe, he throws it to the side, and then he, quote, covers his feet. An Old Testament term for going to the bathroom. We we do the same thing if if you think about it. So what do you suppose David is thinking at that very moment? The most vulnerable his enemy will ever be. And there was some debate at my house on if I left this in or not, but I wanted to leave this in. It's like an egg being eaten by a snake. Think about the worst kind of snake you can imagine, a rattlesnake, a black mamba, whatever it is. If that snake unhinges its jaw and starts to swallow an egg, it is totally defenseless to any predator that comes upon it. And that's basically how King Saul is right now. He's got his feet covered, he's going to the bathroom, and David and his men are armed and are sitting in the cave, and they can see, and Saul can't. 
So what would be running through your mind if you were in David's place? Well, many of us have been there in some similar situation, right? If you're a student and you're in the room, you know that time you found the answer key? Or maybe something went wrong and you got the same test that someone had as a study test before and you have all the answers and you don't know exactly what you're going to do. Maybe if you're a business person in the room, you have inside information on a stock that tells you to get rid of it or buy it because something is coming that's going to be very profitable for you if you do one of those and hopefully you won't go to jail. Maybe you have a bid process and you get the information about the bid process that ensures that your bid will win. And then you don't have to go through all the guesswork about what to include in the bid. Or whatever it is, it's our competitor's biggest weakness, ensuring our victory and our win. Maybe it's even overhearing a private phone conversation that wasn't meant for you, but now you have information that you wouldn't have otherwise. Now, all of these pale in comparison to what's going on in 1 Samuel 24, right? Because none of these are going to kill anybody. But still, these are about the closest things I could think of to similar situations where we would be guaranteed an outcome just because of the situation we find ourselves in. Our destiny is often in our own hands, and most of the time we take it, right? Because we say something like, it was meant to be, why else would it have happened this way? Or, God delivered it into my hand, maybe some people would say. That's kind of a biblical-type phrase. So, rationalization starts happening, right? David and Saul must be in the same cave, As a sign from God, why else would they be in the same cave? How would that have just happenstancely occurred? David has already been anointed king, so really this isn't a big thing. He's just going to be king a little bit sooner. Everyone in Israel knew he was going to follow Saul as king. And Saul's unguarded and vulnerable like no other time. All right, if David was not thinking this way, we know his men were. Because of the next section of text. Listen to this, starting in verse 4. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Interesting phrase. I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Which actually has, in fact, occurred right now. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David's men might have been thinking, all right, kill the king and we can all go home with David as the king of Israel, right? I mean, it's right here. It's this easy. No more running, no more hiding, no more hiding out, and no more fighting for our lives. We would actually be now on the winning side and we would be with the king and all of life would get better. Kill Saul and become king, David, before King Saul kills you. But, Had God asked David to kill Saul? Look at what David's mindset comes from when he talks about his relationship with God. We've covered these uh, as well in Les' sermon. Psalm 56, 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, for men are attacking me all day long. Hostile enemies are tormenting me. Those who anticipate my defeat, attack me all day long. Indeed, many are fighting against me, O exalted one, when I am afraid I trust in you. In God, I boast in his promise. In God, I trust. I am not afraid. What kind, what, what can mere men do to me? That doesn't sound like a guy who thinks that he's got to make this move 
or else, right? This sounds like somebody who yields everything to God. Look at Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. I will extol the Lord at all times. I will praise him always, and his name will be on my lips. That would be hard to do if you were getting ready to do something that was totally, totally contrast to what that statement says, right? So David's adrenaline is high right now. It's just like Brian Shepard and Les told us last week. This is pretty much the fight or flee type moment. You know, he can probably hear his heart and feel his pulse and his vision, you know, see the, the vision jumping. But David feels something and w- that was not right about the situation. Something just doesn't feel right. Verse 5 says David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Hmm. Wonder why. Because David's about to murder the king, that's why. And he knows who chose the king. The king is God's first chosen king. And God chose him. And so everything we just looked at in the Psalms, it's David's mindset of how he thinks about God, interacts with God. He would be dashing all that to say, well, I'll kill the one God chose because I know God wants me to be king. See, David did not know the outcome, though, of his decision. Killing the king, killing Saul, would not necessarily guarantee anything other than David being a murderer of the king. David realized that only God is in control. David would not play the role of God. If David kills the king, he will have a different legacy than being a man after God's own heart. He'll be the man that killed God's first king. That would be pretty hard to get out from under, right? What happens next is absolutely remarkable. David does something very few of us have the self-control to do. David submits 100% to God, allowing God to be fully responsible for David's life yielded to him. Another way of saying that statement is David just says, okay, here I am in the, in the cave with King Saul. Maybe you're telling me, God, that I should kill Saul and become king because you've, you've told me that I will be king. You've anointed me as the next king. But you know what? However I become king is going to be how you decide to do it, not how I decide to do it. Whew. I don't know about you, but I've been in those situations and probably not, not chosen that well. Continuing on in verse 6, he said to his men now in the cave who can also see, who are ready to not be chased anymore and not be on the run all the time, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Can you see that? Just, you know, you've gone to the bathroom, you've gotten everything buttoned up, and out you go, and you had no idea how close you came to actually death. Men were in the cave with you, ready to kill you. And you're just, let's let's continue on, let's go look for David. And so David comes out of the cave and says... My Lord, the king. And Saul turns around and looks behind him. And David bows down and prostrates himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? 
This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. In this cave I've just come out of, that you've just come out of. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it off. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Look at this in verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? No, you're pursuing David and his mighty men. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. So there's all of that transfer of all the responsibility of David back on to God. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? As if he doesn't know. And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. And then watch this. Saul knows David's relationship with God. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Why is David a good example for us today? Was he perfect? (laughs) No. Did he sin? Definitely. But how did David end up becoming king? If we look at Isaiah 55, verse 3, it says, Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you can live. Then I, God speaking, then I will make an unconditional covenantal promise to you, just like the reliable covenantal promises I made to David. See, if we go back a couple of weeks ago, John Micah had this word hesed in his sermon. Now, you've probably seen that word, and you probably don't like us getting up here and saying Hebrew words, but here's the, here's the thing with this Hebrew word. It starts with a hard H. There's two H's in Hebrew. One H just is ha, just like normal. The other H is more like a het. And it usually has a K in front of it in English spellings, or sometimes it'll have a dot notation like you'll see on the rest of the slides this morning to remind you to say it the hard way. It's not up here to be impressive and tell you about Hebrew words. It's because all of those English words don't add up to a definition of that Hebrew word. Michael Card's book there on the right-hand side of the screen, The Inexpressible Hesed and the Mystery of God's Loving Kindness. Things like loyal love, gracious love, covenant love, covenant of love, covenant faithfulness, gracious covenant, covenant loyalty, unswerving loyalty, Loyal mercy, kindness, merciful mercy, which you heard from Joe at communion, which we're going to tie in here in a second. Compassion, grace, endlessly patient, beauty. See, here's the thing. 
Hesed is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Hesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. And that's what God's saying he did towards David. And that's what I'm hoping we're seeing this morning. David does back towards God. In Psalm 56, 12, he says, I am under vows to you, my God. Those aren't promises or things of, you know, well, if you save me out of the cave, well, if you do this, I'll do that. What he's talking about there is he's a man of hesed. He is in reciprocal hesed back to God. And by the way, he also has hesed now with Saul because Saul said, please swear to me you will not kill my, my family and you won't wipe me out of the history books. He has hesed to Jonathan even after Jonathan dies. David is always in covenantal agreement with those he has made covenants with. David is a man after God's own heart because of covenantal loyalty. Do we wish to be women and men after God's own heart? Well, let's look at what that means. God pursues us constantly, also a part of Hesed. Everywhere we go, God is right behind us, waiting for us to turn around, just waiting to take us into his arms. All the time, One, Psalm 139 tells us God is always with us. There's nowhere we can go to get away from him where he will not be. God asks us for hesed, not sacrifice. That's the word behind Hosea 6.6, 6, Joe, that we translate mercy is I have covenantal relation with you, you have covenantal relation with me. Jesus comes along in Matthew 9 and in 12 and says, why don't you go find out what it means when, when the scriptures say, I require mercy rather than sacrifice. I require hesed rather than sacrifice. We must pursue God constantly. Think about this. If we don't, what would it look like if God only pursued us as much as we pursue him? What if, we only, what if God only gave us one hour on Sundays? What if there was only a day of the week that he said, okay, I'll listen to you guys. The rest of the time I've got other stuff to do. We must pursue him constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We must allow God to be fully responsible for our lives yielded to him. He's made promises to us. We are not in control. He is. If we give our lives to him, if I die today, he already knew it. If I don't die today, it's because of him. Hesed is not merely a Hebrew word. It is a Hebrew ideal, and one only understands hesed by actually doing it. So, as John Micah said, let's go out from here as women and men after God's own heart. And here's how we do it. Let's live in covenantal loyalty, reciprocal hesed, back to God. And I, I've tweaked a statement from A.W. Tozer. The first sentence is, is Tozer's. He says, go to church once a week, nobody pays attention. His second sentence said, worship God seven days a week, and people will think you're strange. And I changed that. Worship God seven days a week, and one is a woman or a man after God's own heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day, the beginning of a wonderful week. Thank you for all of the children of yours that are gathered here in this room and also electronically connected to us. And just the mysterious way you even wove this morning together, um, from John Micah's opening statements to Joe's communion service, 
to the lessons that have been given to us by Les and Brian Shepard and John Micah and Rodney Cloud. We just, uh, we see how you work everything towards one direction. And we ask that if we've not seen this before, that we be like David. We know David wasn't perfect. We know David sinned. But we also know that David believed in you and dedicated his entire life to you and put it all in your hands. And even when Nathan called his attention to something he had done wrong, he used your covenantal uh, framework for making amends. Yes, he made mistakes, but his heart was always for you. He never turned to other gods. He never decided to do things his way or take his life into his own hands. And I pray that this morning as we leave here, we do the same. And we know that the people that we engage with, the people that we see, you've placed in our path for some reason. And if we always listen to you and yield everything to you, if we're to be kings, you'll make us kings. We don't have to do it. We pray all this in Jesus' name and through the power of your spirit. Amen.